Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to the 19th of November 2020 Hong Kong Stories podcast. I'm Rachel Smith. We have done it. Three shows in five weeks, and we are so pleased to have been able to bring you some live storytelling again. It was good to see at least part of your faces and to be back up on stage again during the Student Story Slam, the October Live Show, and the Hong Kong International Literary Festival Show. This week, as we wander through the streets of Hong Kong, we'll be listening to a cautionary tale from Nick about the risks of his current addiction. And we will re-listen to a story of a wildlife encounter I told in the studio. Before we get to today's stories, however, a big hug goes out to our beautiful Hong Kong listeners. We're so pleased that so many of you could join us for all the three shows recently. It was great to see you in person again. Thanks to our overseas listeners as well, especially listeners in Singapore, in Singapore, Berlin in Germany, and Gallarat in Italy. Thanks for letting our stories into your ears. We have some workshops coming up and even a show. December 17th at the Fringe Club, we'll be taking to the stage to bring you our stories on the theme for you. If you think you might have a story that fits our theme and you might be interested in telling at our next live event, get in touch via the Contact Us link on the website at hongkongstories.com. Hong Kong Stories. It's better than drama. It's better than comedy. It's real life. And now with the story from the October show, which was once the July show, which had the theme community, here is Nick. I have a problem, more of an addiction. I've been hooked for about 15 years. It's on my mind constantly throughout the day and even in my dreams at night. I'm a rock climber. Great uh, workout, good uh, adrenaline rush, but it's the mental side that keeps you hooked. How to choose which features of rock to use in the most efficient manner to get up a route without getting pumped and falling off. Climbing is about problem solving. Naturally, it attracts a strong sense of community. The repetitive nature of the sport combined with the technical knowledge seems to attract a combination of perfectionists, control freaks, and the obsessive-compulsive. <laughs> I won't say which I am. Uh, a few months back, we're climbing at Sea Gully, a sheer cliff face towering above the ocean on one of the outer islands. It's a good day for climbing. Nice temperature, low humidity, bit of a breeze. Climbers arrive and gradually fill the gully. I see the same faces every weekend, all coming back to get their fix. I see Victor, a friend of mine. He's looking strong, keen to complete a particular route before his free time is whisked away, having recently become a father. He disappears around the blade. The blade is a sharp arete of black rock. It separates our respective routes on either side. So I go for a first practice run on my route. I'll describe it in a bit more detail. You lay back a small finger crack. You've got to be careful because the rock is like super chossy. You come up to a big pinch with a thumb catch, and then you do this span. The feet are terrible. This is like the first crux. Cross through, really delicate. Then you've got to rock up your left foot onto a ledge, onto the, 
and you work a traverse with these terrible slopers. Once you get some height, you flip those to undercuts, and you come up to some, uh, some small crimps and side pulls. Then you come into a Gaston and a high left slot, and you come, and second crux, tiny little crimper, you gotta match that and dead point to a jug, and you're done. Hopefully, uh, you understood that. That's actually how climbers talk. Um, I'm in the zone. Everything is quiet in the zone. You're so focused on the rock in front of you that other surroundings just seem to disappear. Shouts from climbers become, shouts from other climbers become whispers. Spending small moments in the zone is one of the main reasons I climb. From around the arete, a loud crack like that of falling rock echoes through the gully, then silence. I'm confused. The area is known for loose rock, but that sounded a little different, more like wood. I asked my partner to lower me to the ground. Then the screaming begins. Not the usual screams of exhaustion or frustration, but screams of real pain. I untie my rope and round the corner. A combination of taking a chance in the moment and bad technical error has seen Victor take a big fall. His leg is snapped clean in half, just above the ankle. Bloody red open wound with bright white bone protruding. I'm in shock. I've never seen anything like this. I'm looking at the inner workings of the human body. It's surreal. Hanging there by the rope with the limp foot, he reminds me of a puppet. And for a split moment, life feels like a performance. The illusion has been revealed. A call goes out for 999, and it stirs me from the trance. I'm no medic, but I know we have to raise the wound to slow the bleeding. So I scramble up the diagonal slab of rock at the base of the climb and support Victor as he's lowered to the ground. I'm pinned under him, supporting the leg. Another friend runs in to support the foot, another with cold water and a towel. The scene plays out for what seems like forever. Luckily, the bleeding and the screaming and the pain subside. A team of about 20 sea police are on hand should an air rescue not be possible. Finally, a chopper arrives and circles once, twice, three times, eventually getting in position above the narrow channel to lower a stretcher. Victor is strapped in, winched up, and whisked away. We leave the gully in silence. It's not been a good day for climbing. That evening, I get a text. Doctor confident I'll make a full recovery and return to climbing in the near future. A few days later, surgery is complete and Victor begins his training doing stomach crunches in his hospital bed. Thank you. Now when you listen, Nick sounds confident and frankly pretty awesome during his story. But this is what he said just before he told his story on stage. This audience looks terrifying. <laughs> I assure you, getting up and telling your story isn't that bad. You can try it out at one of our workshops. Find out how by following the instructions 
at hongkongstories.com. Now here's a story of mine which also involves a bit of danger, though not in the same way. It was told live, but there were problems with the recording, so it was re-recorded in the studio later on. First told in 2017, this is Rachel. At 5.30 a.m., the air was crisp and cool as I set off from Newcastle City Centre on my first full day of my grand solo adventure. I was so excited to finally be on my way. I felt a bit conspicuous with my red backpack and my camera around my neck, but before long, I had reached the outskirts of town and left the main roads behind. When I got to the first piece of Hadrian's Wall, I stopped for a rest break and a celebratory apple, feeling justified in my decisions. I was on the Hadrian's Wall Walk, 84 miles from east to west coast of England. It follows Hadrian's Wall, hence the name, which was built around 122 AD by the occupying Roman forces. It was perfect. The English summer climate is very mild, and there are pubs and inns along the way not far from the path, and of course, England has virtually no dangerous wildlife. I was in this rather remote part of England because I was having a midlife crisis. I'd begin to doubt the decisions I'd made in my life and wonder, what did I hope to achieve? Here I was, an almost 40-year-old, with the same dreams and aspirations I had when I was in my 20s, but seemingly no further along. I wanted some time alone to think, and I needed a new challenge to focus on. So I decided to go on an adventure. And what better adventure than to try solo hiking? Alone, there's no need to compromise, no one to negotiate with, and no one to berate me if I found myself giving up. I would rely on myself and my own two feet. I would walk and I would think, and I would remind myself that I was a strong and independent person. I am also a realistic person, so I set myself parameters. I needed an established, well-trodden trail in a place that was wild, but not too wild. A place where if I got too cold or too wet or too hungry, I could turn on my mobile and call a cab or book into a hotel for a restorative night. As word began to filter out to friends and family about my intentions, reactions began pouring in. I had not expected the level of concern that this solo hiking adventure would generate. I got myself a water filter, stocked up on bread, cheese and apples, packed a first aid kit and made sure that my phone was charged and could get reception. Instead of a tent, I got myself a bivy sack, a lightweight, waterproof bag that zips around your sleeping bag and covers everything but your face, and allows you to sleep in comfort anywhere there's space enough for you to lie down. As the time to leave drew close, I felt well prepared, but the reactions from friends and family became almost frantic. You cannot go alone, they said. It's not safe. I tried not to let their fears influence my decisions, but I was relieved when it was finally time to go and I could leave all that negativity and doubt behind me. And it was worth it. Hadrian's Wall is super nifty. And as I walked alongside ever larger pieces of it scattered through the path, I marveled at the men who'd built this wall so long ago. Men who'd come from far-flung regions of a lost empire to this small island, They quarried and carried these rocks and built a wall that would last almost 2,000 years. Each one was a cog in the wheel, and each one was a small piece of history. And I felt better about my life as I walked along, 
I too would just carry on, putting one brick atop another and hope that my walls would leave some imprint on the future too. By 6 p.m., I'd walked almost 29 kilometers. Around this time, I also realized that I should probably have included some physical training in my preparation, but feared that it was too late as I began to apply myself to looking for a place to spend the night. Up ahead, I saw a small grove of pine trees around five acres in area, with the trees planted in neat straight rows. England is an old country, and this is the most forest I've seen so far, so it looks very inviting, and pine needles lay thick on the ground, making it springy and soft and comfortable. I went further into the grove, away from the path, to stop to inspect a spot just past a small ridge. It was perfect. The trees blocked out the wind and softened all the surrounding sounds. The floor was soft and dry, and I would be out of sight of the path. I had some dinner, washed my face with a flannel and brushed my teeth, and snuggled down into the sleeping bag on the ground with my Kindle, which is lightweight but full of books. As I relaxed in the fresh evening air, I felt pretty pleased with myself and laughed inwardly at all those silly fears I had upon setting out. Fears deepened by the worries of people who loved me and who were concerned for my safety, but who were, obviously, way overreacting. And that is when he first appeared. His small, beady black eyes and his pointed little face looked out from behind a nearby tree trunk. I started... But then I laughed at myself. (laughs) It was only a squirrel. He waggled his tail at me and ran around the trunk of the tree a few more times before coming out onto a branch above my head, standing on his hind feet and saying, I had no idea that squirrels could make that noise. But either way, I wasn't going to let it bother me. I turned the brightness up on my Kindle and continued to read. The squirrel jumped to another tree and started again. I pretended not to hear it. I must be sleeping in one of its favorite spots for hiding its nuts or something. But it was only a squirrel. They're famously not very bright. I ignored it. I ignored it as it hopped from tree to tree never very far away, and continued to barrage me with its screams. Phew, he was a persistent little guy. But I was a human, and he was a squirrel, so there was no way that I was going to let him scare me away. I put away my book, zipped up my bivy sack, and turned my back to him. He continued, sometimes higher up, other times lower down. It was a test of wills, me against the squirrel. But I am a strong and independent person, willing to face new challenges alone. I was not going to be intimidated by a squirrel. Finally, as dust started to settle and the frantic scrabbling and eerie screaming stopped, and I congratulated myself on sticking with my decision. There was nothing to be frightened of out here in the English countryside. Even a manic squirrel couldn't scare me away. I mean, what could a squirrel do to me anyway? My self-satisfaction was lulling my weary body into a deeper sleep when, fuck, something hit me. I sat up, encased in my cocoon, and looked around. 
and cradled in my lap was a pine cone, one of the ones from the trees above. I looked up and could just make out the tops of the trees in the late evening breeze swaying back and forth. It must have shaken loose by the wind. As I lay down again, far above me, I saw the flash of a leaping grey body and a bushy tail high above. Thuck! Another pine cone landed on my recumbent form. Then thuck! Thuck! Two more came down from above and carried on the wind in the ever-darkening night came the eerie cry of... I calmly and collectedly got out of my warm bed, turned on my flashlight and carefully stowed my belongings in my pack. I wedged my tired, swollen, aching feet into my shoes, slung the pack onto my back and trudged another two kilometers in the ever-darkening gloom of night to an open pasture and the sheltering branches of an old oak tree. I was not defeated or lessened by my encounter. I had just come to realize with calm acceptance that I could still be a strong and independent person somewhere else. Thanks for listening to today's stories brought to you by Hong Kong Stories. The music for this podcast was written and performed by Andrew Robert Smith. Everyone has a story to tell. <laughs>